Would you elect Clay Davis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> <sighs> and it's just got a good one-liner, man. Yeah. Oh. Watch The Wire, everybody. Yes, no, it's it's hot stuff. It is really good. It is also October 27th, 2016. This is a special machination log we got going on here because I have essentially vowed, unless I really like doing this, to not do this again. Yes. <laughs> um, the election's coming up. I think everyone around the world is all too painfully aware of that. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time this goes up, it'll probably not be the 27th, but it uh, will certainly be before the election. And I brought in Ryan Riley. Yes, hello. For some expert chat and dialogue about this election. And the reason I needed, actually, no, I think his role here is pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan's a politiker. Yes. So. I do. I do enjoy the politics. I do actually pay for news subscriptions. Um, and I, you know, I studied it formally in college for many years and I've continued my study outside of it. And, um, it forms a main component of my waking hours, <laughs> enjoying studying and learning about politics. I, by contrast, yes, <laughs> I'm part of, see, I consider myself a problem solver. Right. And to the extent that I can earn that title, uh, one of the ways that I do it is that I look at the landscape mm -hmm. of people complaining about things and then I just don't do those things. Mm -hmm. So for example, social media, right. pretty much constantly reviled by everyone, mm -hmm. also engaged in by everyone. Yes. Politics, same deal. Poli everyone complains that everyone in politics is corrupt, that the sides are essentially the same with other rose-tinted glasses, mm -hmm. and that everybody's stupid, and then everybody participates. Yes. I opt out of that system yeah. to the extent that I possibly can, mm -hmm. because I see it, and it's not, it's not entirely just because I don't have a stance, which I don't. I have a very, very hard time, and this, you would think that in a system where the politicians and the stances are in some way being intelligently developed that it would be possible to sympathize with most stances. Mm -hmm. So it seems reasonable that I can't necessarily pick a side on this stuff, uh, except right this very second, right. um, for once. And that's the reason we're talking in the first place is that yeah, this so. is, this is one of the only times in, it's one of the, it is the only time in my life that politics not necessarily that it's interfered with my life because it always it's always just a fly on the wall. Every, someone is talking about it at all times. This is one of the first times that I haven't been able to take a more stoic approach to it. Right. Because there are there are things to it that have that are going to have that feel at least like they're going to have ramifications in a way that they didn't. Yes. Um. You know, we can't know for sure that Al Gore wouldn't have gone to war in the Middle East mm -hmm. over 9-11. Right. Because just based on the way that Bush was talking when he was elected, didn't necessarily suggest that. Yeah, exactly. There's like th these things, regardless of who you are, it's it pays to acknowledge, I think, and Ryan, please correct me if I'm wrong here. It There is a tremendous amount of bipartisan consensus on the large actions governments like the United States take because they're taken by forces beyond... Demo the Democrats or the Republicans. Mm -hmm. There's a machine behind them. Yes, absolutely. That usually keeps it moving. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that there's some, there's several things that you got into there that I wanted to maybe mention quickly, and I'll just bring up your last point first. Um, you are right that there is a large consensus 
on, you know, what defines American politics in particular. Um, you know, the kind of like political liberalism that we tend to have in this country where, you know, the conservative side and the liberal side of that, of that political liberalism is pretty much in consensus about, you know, like 85% of major political questions. Uh, I think we've started to see that fray more in the last um, four, eight years or so. But at the same time, you know, there is, because we are the largest country and most powerful country in the world in the whole range of measures as well, that that kind of keeps its own momentum going also. Um, one of the interesting things about the fact that, you know, most people hate politics and that's absolutely demonstrable because, you know, about on any given, on, on, even on our most successful presidential general elections, 55 or excuse me, 45% of the people that could participate in it choose not to. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, of course, the other 55% that might vote in this election, um, you know, half of those people bitch and complain and hate it as well. And then the other half of those people just aren't paying attention to the last month uh, before an election. So, <laughs> you know, there is this, and I think that, you know, my main thesis about why that is the case is because things are actually pretty damn good in this country, right? People can afford to not pay attention to politics. People can afford to not participate because things are pretty good. And I think that's what I would describe as the kind of machine you're referring to here, right? The larger kind of, you know, managed capitalist system that we have in this country, you know, the mechanisms that kind of, that kind of keep that going and, and undergird it, but also, you know, make sure that, you know, our water is primarily mostly and throughout half the country, you know, lead free, <laughs> um, you know, like there's um, a lot of that, that kind of, Look, one county out of a thousand is not bad. Yeah, well, that it, but that also this idea of like regulating our lives, like you know, we had a hurricane in or in or uh, near or Florida and near Orlando, where we, where we're currently casting from. Did you lose power? Nope. Yeah, exactly. Right, like government. Like, <laughs> thank you, government. Like this, this. So you know, these things, it has an effect, and it tends to work well because you know we don't look behind the curtain on a lot of like the functioning aspects of governance. And the problem is, is that it makes its failures all the more relevant and evident to us when it does happen. And I also like the idea of being a problem solver. I mean, like, I think we both have our own ideological perspectives. And I think that by and large, if, you know, we're going to like, you know, put ourselves into two camps, I think that you definitely would fall in a lot of areas towards a more libertarian mindset on a lot of issues. And I would tend to fall more towards the left in terms of, of, a, of a socialist mindset on a lot of issues. But at the same time, I think that that ideology defines my goals, not necessarily the means of achieving them. And this is where I think that we, I think, have a lot of uh, symbiosis in the way that we look at politics, which is that, you know, I tend to look at politics as like things I want to happen and I think would be good for our society and for people individually. And I'm really flexible in achieving those goals. Like, so for example, like, like healthcare, I think that in the richest country in the world, people shouldn't go have to go into hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to like get cancer treatments. That you shouldn't be losing your house because of medical debt. That every American should have fucking basic health insurance and should be able to go to a doctor once a year for a fucking physical and not have to pay out of pocket for it. Like that's what I think should happen. And if you can suggest to me a market-oriented solution that would achieve that, I would support it. I mean, I absolutely would like universal care that achieves the goal of covering the least in our society and helping out everyone in between from the, from the richest to the least, I would be in favor of that system. 
And I think that kind of flexibility tends to get lost on people because the phrase I hear from a lot of people about this election is that it's broken down into this kind of like tribal aspect. And I think that for people that aren't necessarily overtly tribal like you and I, I don't think that that like, I think that this was made this election so odd in a weird way and what has kind of like made it so unique primarily because it's, it seems like it's broken down into like, you know, almost like sports where we're like rooting for our team and there's just this like pathological hatred for the other team the same way that there's no real reason why people of different sports teams absolutely have to despise each other other than the fact that we just sit on opposite sides of the stadium for a game. I think there's two things to address there and just to uh, to, to cover where we come from first because that, yeah. that makes way more sense. Um, I, I can understand why you read the way that I behave as libertarian, mm -hmm. but for what it's worth, I have, a, um, I have an exceptionally pragmatic, virtually, uh, uh, verging on casuistic mm -hmm. understanding of how government should be run. Right. Absolutely. Um, I don't really care what our government looks like as long as it does its job effectively. Right. And for what it's worth, I mean, I'm not actually entirely satisfied with the notion of universal health care because I am acutely aware of the robot, <laughs> the robot economic apocalypse on mm -hmm. The horizon, and right. I'm I'm actually more in favor of universal basic income. Right, interesting. Okay, I I would almost which granted that is a very libertarian way to approach wealth redistribution mm -hmm. because it is very literally just giving people the money. But I I honestly I don't see a practical way out of this that doesn't require mechanisms that we're not going to have in place in the next thirty years that are going to be there in time to fix this. But even even assuming that we could, if we found a way. To make Obamacare work the way right. that it was drafted to work, mm -hmm. I have no problems with it at all. Mm -hmm. Be uh, not only because it is partly the government's job to make sure that you can't, that there is a net yeah. to fall into when things go rough, it makes, it, it makes more sense to me to have a government base level understanding of what medicine is for everyone mm -hmm. for the purpose of making the free market play fairly. Right. Because if you have a base standard that no one can fall below, which is something that regulations are supposed to do, mm -hmm. it's just that medicine is so fucking complicated mm -hmm. that it's really, it's just, it's just aggravating to come up with what that means. I mean, half of what makes Obamacare infuriating to people like me isn't, it's not that it provides a, <laughs> a pseudo market example of what the government can do for insurance. Mm -hmm. It's that, everyone's insurance has to look like it now. Right. It's that it is confining in an absolutely unnecessary way. And right. it, and it does, I mean, I, I know that the terms overplayed uh, at this point, but it, it does actually stifle innovation in a sector that could very much benefit from it because insurance and particularly health maintenance organizations, which is one of the worst terms ever. Yeah. Um, once you tie doctors and insurance companies together, once you actually get a, a net of those things together, that could be something really special. But we assume that doesn't work right. correctly, and we, we, we interfere with it. But I think that, that, that interference is not intrinsically bad because we do the same thing with cars. Right. And you would be out of your mind to suggest that the regulations we put on cars are bad. Yes. I mean, the... the it is really, really hard. The reason why everyone's car looks exactly the same is because there are 
thousands of things mm-hmm. about cars that all have to be exactly the same. Yes. And almost all of them are justifiable. Well, and, and I think you're kind of hitting on a key point here, which is that, you know, in reference to cars, the idea that the government would put, in a sense, arbitrary standards on like miles per gallon requirements on cars that says that, you know, because the odd thing is, is you can, and you can see this in, the, in like how people's purchasing patterns, which is that when gas prices spike, SUV sales fall. But when gas prices go down, SUV, SUV sales rise, which means that people aren't like making a determination that says that, you know, this black goop that we suck out of the crust of the earth is going to inevitably go away one day. And this, you know, 16 mile per gallon car might not, you know, suffice it over the long term for me, might not be reasonable. But people actually act on the very short term basis about their own consumeristic desires. And the problem is, is that then in for cars in particular, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of, the, all, one of the main reasons that cars all look the same as well is because you see like requirements on health standard, uh, safety standards that need to be met. Yes. On if they and if they say, hey, we can get our mile, if we can get our miles per gallon, uh, you know, boosted 0.5 per 0.5 miles per uh, uh, per gallon by sloping this a certain way so that it is more efficient in terms of air resistance. We're going to do that. Um, in the terms of the marketplace, and so. And so when you see the kind of competition that results of government interference in this, I think you're absolutely right to say that, you know, while it doesn't necessarily reflect the will of the consumer, who the fuck said that consumers make good decisions anyway? No, that's the other, that's the other thing about regulations that frequently gets overlooked is that even we, – we don't even necessarily have to look at the consumer as being an idiot in this case. Right. I don't want to have to double check everything. Right. If there is – a semi-unambiguous positive mm-hmm. to knowing about the the content of the chemicals in any given food or additive, I want someone else to take care of that for yes, me. Yes, exactly. Like, I'm a reasonably intelligent individual. I could do the math. I could figure this out. I could run my own tests. I could have a private company do the own t- their own tests. And back, I don't want. Yes, exactly. That is a, bur- that is, that is a very real burden on my life that I don't want there. Well, and we've talked before about, you know, that, you know, most of the people we have on this podcast are like gifted students, which means that we would have the intelligence to kind of understand if, if, if in purchasing a product that we were being shafted by some, you know, dodgy statistics or, you know, some, some flowery language. I mean, but the thing is, is that we're smart enough to try to understand and figure that out. And we don't want to exert the mental energy and capacity to be able to do that. It's, it's and then an there actual pe- economic waste. Yes. And then there are also people who are too stupid to figure it out and who aren't capable of kind of, you know, through education or, or whatever means, aren't capable of understanding these kinds of issues. And that they need to, in a sense, be protected and ensured that they aren't being taken advantage of by people like that. And, you know, I am... You know, when I, I took a lot of economics classes in my undergrad time. You know, I went through the whole cycle of, you know, these these higher theory, uh, the higher theory of markets, and I just had come to a larger conclusion that, you know, individual actions, especially in the market, do not always lead to the best collective outcome. And in that sense, that's what kind of leads me more towards this element of socialism, which is that I'm very skeptical when people say that, you know, markets always, you know, eat, reach equilibrium. And there's always, you know, this, this kind of like says law logic of how everything should work. And I don't, you know, I don't experience that in my own life. I don't behave rationally in the way that like these economics models were telling me that I was behaving or I should be behaving or that I unconsciously behave as a human being. And I mean, in that sense, the kind of rationality that people bring to the market 
uh, is the same kind of rationality that people bring to politics, which is that I find that people are just relying on their own mental heuristics to make decisions in this world, and that they rarely kind of challenge those basic assumptions once they've kind of established them in their minds. And, you know, it's just very, it's difficult when you're trying to discuss with someone, especially like normal people. Like when I go and like talk to like, you know, people that I engage with, like my, you know, my students or like normal people outside of my work or my, my friends, my friendships, you know, there is just this insistence that they're going to talk about politics in a way that so describes the generalities. But when you push and ask for specifics and or when you push the kind of inherent logic behind that, I mean, most people cannot go more than two exchanges in discussing an issue in depth, any specific issue in depth. I mean, there is like a, there is a really like a two point limit that many people are based a lot of their opinions on. And it is just very disheartening to a certain extent because, I mean, if we're making political and market decisions based on very simple assumptions that we make about the world, I mean, what does that tell us about how we're being, how politics is presented to us by the people that have something to gain by doing so? And this is what is very, very concerning to me in general as well, is that, you know, when we kind of lead into where and what this election is about right now, and how these arguments are being presented to us, how the world is being characterized by, the, by politicians today, I am very concerned about what this has on a, on a collective scale. Because people individually kind of make decent decisions regarding their lives. I mean, you know, most people are not, you know, complete fuck-ups that have, like, ruined their lives yet. But at the same time, the rhetoric of... the the rhetoric and optimism that someone shares in their own life is not mirrored in the re- in the rhetoric and optimism they have for our society writ large. And I don't know why there's such a disconnect between that. I mean, do you have any idea or any thoughts or any experiences that kind of like relays like how someone can be so decently optimistic about their prospects and yet think that the world is some massive shithole that we're like currently living in? Uh, may I introduce you to the other mind's fallacy? Okay. I was talking about this with Thomas nigh on four days ago, I okay. believe. The other mind's fallacy. I have a running I have a running conspiracy theory. Okay, good. The I'll... other mind's fallacy is responsible for every human woe at this point. Okay. <laughs> um the other mind's fallacy is a combination. It's basically a cocktail of psychological conditions mm-hmm. that have different names, but it combines the idea that you can't see into other people's heads. Right. Um this manifests in its most original form with the solipsistic fallacy that you are the center of the universe and that everyone else around you is just is merely a human right as opposed to being you the agent Mm -hmm. um but that expands out and it that's that's the way it starts when you're a kid and then as you develop as a child you run into another interesting thing where you run into the the proper other minds fallacy where it starts to occur to you that other people don't actually see what you see, mm-hmm. that people don't experience what you experience mm-hmm. the same way. I mean, it's where I think it's the Heideggerian, or yeah. it's either Heide- it, one of the one of the generic German philosophers that <laughs> came up with these kinds of things, like the idea that maybe everyone sees red differently, right? That kind of thing mm-hmm. that that you experience in childhood, and you get over that eventually, and then from there. It's really a crapshoot whether people make it to the next phase (laughs) because the next phase is to overcome the fundamental attribution error. Mm -hmm. And this one is really, really hard. The fundamental attribution error, which I know we've talked about on the machination log before, but it's worth repeating because it's an absolutely critical thing to understand about the way your brain works. Um, 
it's and it's mostly a hard drive space input output capacity issue. Right. Um, you assume that you are the only active element in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to take in other people stereotypically because you do not have the capacity, generally speaking, to address everyone the way that you address yourself. Right. When you go to a reunion, a family reunion, after 10 years, and you've had five jobs and got divorced twice mm-hmm. and just you've moved around and then you meet with your uncle and your grandma and they go, ah, good old Ryan, mm-hmm. always like he used to was. Mm-hmm. And that's infuriating because right. you are so not that person anymore. Right. Okay. But they can't, they cannot help it because you have so much time to mull around, think about what you think about. Right. And even if it does in reality lead you back to the same square one that you always had, you thought really hard before getting there. Right, yeah. And it's the reason why everyone in politics feels like they hold the honest. I mean, it's it's almost tautologically true that the moral stance everyone accepts is the one that they believe to be the most honest in mm-hmm. some way. Despite the fact that we have so many differing opinions across the United States and even within friend groups, that that seems insane. Mm -hmm. And yet we think for hours and hours and hours, maybe not every day, but at least every month, Mm -hmm. you get a lot of time to sit down and think about what you believe in and Mm -hmm. have it impacted by other things around you and by other events that happen. And you still arrive at a conclusion that is almost exclusively yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing that that's true right. is just, this is, it's one of the many beautiful things in the This Is Water commencement speech yeah, by David Foster Wallace is the idea that other people have honestly got to where they are. Right, absolutely. And that's just, that is an insanely hard thing to do. I think his, what is it? Uh, his his term for it is it is unimagin it is unimaginably hard to do, yes. and that is exactly the right way to phrase it because it is a matter of imagination, mm-hmm. um, and it's one that most people are not willing to accept, whether they are being whether they are successful or not. Because if you are successful, there's no reason to heed unsuccessful people, and if you are unsuccessful, the more successful almost certainly got there by luck mm-hmm. or malignance. Yeah, exactly. It's. So, and bringing up the successful malignant people, um, <laughs> so part of what is... I think that I, I may have gotten way tangential there, but no, I, feel no, no. Like, I feel like that... Well, it's a good transition point, because... Yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, uh, oh, go ahead, yeah. Oh, no, 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 I was, I was just saying, I was, I was trying to remember... I was trying to remember where that even started. I really like talking about the other mind's fallacy. Yeah. Because you, if you will start seeing, it's like it's like listening to Alex Jones, you'll start seeing patterns in the universe. Right. Like things will just start aligning. It's just, it. it's the reason why every congressman has an approval rating of 90% and Congress has a 6%. Yes, exactly. Like it, it, it describes so many phenomena. Yeah, no. It, so just to cut, um, in like in like public polling, you can find some of these firms that are asking questions about like, that, that are kind of like examining the situation of like, how are you yourself doing? How is your community doing? How are other communities doing? And in general, there is this large gulf between the, like I said, the positivity that someone has to their own situation or their own immediate surroundings and their perspective on everything else in the world, right? It's why, you know, you know, because I think we got to, you know, talk about the orange elephant in the room, which is Trump, you know, the way that he talks about the, the issues that America are in, right? 
people have this assumption about what's happening somewhere else is this like hellscape horrible world, even though that does not mirror or match their own situation that they fa- that they find themselves in or that they're a part of. And what is so odd is that if I mean it's it's partly this like idea or tapping into it and I mean Trump's racism is not like I, first off I think that Trump is a kind of classic racist to a certain extent and I want to kind of diagnose why I want my view on this guy that I've kind of developed with some help from you know reading and talking with friends um I think Trump clearly is a darwinist Right? I think that he is a survival of the fittest kind of guy, and he is about power and achieving what you can and defeating other people by any means necessary. I, I think that he has this very, very harsh view of the world, and you know, you do what you can do and what you can get away with. And that's the kind of world that he operates in. And in kind of like having this like real reptilian brain kind of view on the world where everyone is a competitor that that everyone I come in contact with is in some way against me or competing against me, I think is the better way to say it. Not, and, but I think he personalizes it to a very large degree. Um, this kind of manifestation and it's like projection as a politician, I've got to say, I was surprised. And, you know, of, of all of my expertise, like I was really surprised that this message resonated with people for as long as it did. I can understand that it made an impact when he, you know, descended the escalator and gave his speech and got, you know, 30% in the polls. And initially that made sense to me. What didn't make sense is that he fucking continued that on, that this somehow didn't go away. And this is something that has just very, has troubled me to be honest with you, because like, well, l- let me try to yeah, I mean, be yeah, the devil's yeah. advocate. Yeah, here. let me help help me out here because I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm trying to work my brain around what exactly is is happening here, and on a philosophical level, it makes sense, but it's fucking. I mean, I just I'm I'm trying to hard to, I'm trying to have a hard time kind of seeing how this is, how this how this kind of like has kind of just dug it. I mean, was it there or did he create it to a certain extent? I mean, that's kind of well, where I'm at. Well, let me. I mean, I don't I don't want to accidentally seem like I already have the answer in my head here because no, I, I, I want I need, it to be a conversation. I, need, I know. I need but, help, man. But let me, do, <laughs> let me be the devil's avocado here. Yeah. So Hillary Clinton is scary because it seems like she sees everyone else in the world as a competitor and essentially exploits them for the purpose of power. In fact, she married into a family that does exactly the same thing. They do enough of this that Hitchens, back when uh, he was around, managed to write an entire book. Mm-hmm detailing the scandals of her ascendancy and Bill's ascendancy. But she was there the entire time. There isn't much in what you just said that I think a Trump supporter would not mad lib onto Hillary Clinton. What's the difference? All right, okay. So I think that the key difference there is that, for one thing, the ambition that you see displayed in Hillary Clinton's competitiveness and, and Clinton's competitiveness also, I just, you have to kind of relate it to a, a a viciousness that is so particular to the personality of the person involved. And I know that's exactly what other, once again, you have the same kind of contribution back as well. 
uh, from from a Trump supporter. This Mad Lib works all day long. Okay, yeah. So it's this <laughs> reflectiveness. I mean, it's. I have a theory about it, but I want you to talk it out. Well, definitely. yeah, because but once again, it's that's part of the reason you're here. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> I need to. So the the kind of like the, the the diagnosis that I would give would be the kind of false equivalency issue that we're seeing here as well. There, I, one would hope there's a false equivalency here. Yeah, I have to. I I, <laughs> I have to operate on that point because we. We have so en- engendered the kind of like, diff- you know, this the the, the same the the both sideism that kind of comes from this. I mean, really, my only comeback to a lot of this would be that so much of the crimes that the Clintons are accused of committing are so overstated that I mean, once again, like the Clintons have lived in it, it with the kind of public scrutiny that no human being can relate to. And despite all of this public scrutiny, despite all of the years of investigations, there has been no single, tangible, fucking specific crime that anyone can prove in court. And that is, I just simply cannot believe that this is evidence of some rigged system meant to help some, you know, well-graduated collegiate people from Arkansas. Like, I just can't imagine that they have somehow come to be the epicenter of exactly the kind of machine that you described earlier that kind of runs the momentum behind the status quo in this country. Like, I cannot connect those things together in my mind. And while everyone who achieves a kind of power either does does so through luck and through malignancy, it is about the management of that that we're seeing, which is that in, in fundamental terms, I could point to something that the Clintons have done that have like helped a large group of people. I cannot do the same thing for Donald Trump. I mean, yes, it is true that maybe the Clinton Foundation is a kind of ego stroking project where they can go off and and mingle in high class parties with the rich and powerful of the world. But they were also helping 1.5 million people in Africa have, you know, drugs to manage AIDS. Like I cannot point to a single thing that Donald Trump does apart from like having businesses and give and providing jobs to people that once again, like is somehow demonstrable in the fact that he is capable or unique or, or equitable in the kind of way that you're trying to present to me. Like I just, well, Ryan, I would understand if your, uh, your socialist slash communist proclivities can't see the obvious, uh, Trump side to this argument that mm-hmm. uh, a job is much more important yeah, than, than charity <laughs> yeah. because it provides the productivity and meaning that everyone's looking. I mean, and that's, I, I'm obviously I'm saying that with some degree of facileness, but I do actually think that that plays really well. I think that the, I think that the free, not even just free market argument, but the job market argument is tremendously powerful. Yeah, And absolutely. I, I think it's, I think it's one that has been, um, that he has played up and Trump, whether he knows it or not saying that he creates jobs, I think resonates with far more people than saying that you're feeding African children. Yeah. And, it, but it's, it's the kind of, you know, the larger problem you get when people are like, you know, the government needs to run like a business. And, you know, I, I, you know, I have some scorn for that view of what, you know, governing is. As do is, I. Well, yeah, because, you we know. Have, like, we, we already have businesses. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, And once again, I don't, I think there are some things that government does that businesses, you know, that, uh, some functions that government performs that can be performed by business. You know, like I'm not like something that's like, I don't see this like 
you know, like government metastasizing over society over time, like I do think that there is a relevant private and public sphere and that the two are distinct from each other, right? Yeah. Like, and but the Hope same, so. yeah, well, no, I think, well, I mean, you know, I would argue that there is. And I think that the kind of, com the kind of component that you have associated with both is very, very important. I mean, really, I know I'm fine. I know I find myself kind of stumbling into the tribalism of which I was diagnosing earlier, but it's, it's what we're here to figure out it's because just, I, I've been feeling this the whole time. I know. And I can't. And the problem is that I, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to cut you off if you want to think about it for a little longer. No, I got it. Well, I mean, cause I don't want to. Cause I, I don't want to poison. I don't want to poison your thought process. Well, the, okay. The real area <laughs> where I was going to, which is that, I mean, it seemed to me that you were kind of referring to the specific qualities at which someone was moving towards, you know, with, with Hinton, with Clinton's ambition and you know, supposed crimes that are out there, you know, the fact that we don't see Trump kind of engaging, you know, who has entirely less scrutiny on his public record or his, even his fucking private correspondence. Yeah. I mean, we've got to understand that there are, you know, tens of thousands of public emails for Hillary Clinton that have already gone through. In fact, we've already gone through these tens of thousands of public emails and once again, found that there's nothing in them. Which is so, impressive. Yes. And now, not only that, now we've got stolen emails from one of her main advisors who's running her campaign, and we still can't find fucking smoking guns that find these things. Like, it is, what is so odd to me is that the contempt that people have towards people that are successful at, at building coalitions and the kind of transactional nature of politics, I don't understand why, why Trump supporters give him credit for that and deny the same kind of credit for Clinton. And I think that once again, what we're getting at is that there is a kind of similar argument made towards Clinton supporters, right? Why they can't see Trump's successes for what they are. And I mean, I've got to kind of admit that I'm not as big on Trump's successes either. I mean, Trump seems to me to be in poker, what we call a big stack player, which is in, an, in a tournament game of poker, right? You have nine people around a table. And if a player accrues a larger stack of chips relative to all the other players, you can play a game, you can you play the game differently, right? Aggressiveness pays off more. You can risk more relatively to what uh, to what other people can risk as well, right? Because when you run out of your chip stack in tournament poker, you're done, you're, you're, you've lost, right? So a big stack player can can use that power to manipulate people. And that's what you see Trump doing over and over again. Right, using his resources and his business interactions to screw people down on the bottom on for hit for the only purpose of achieving his bottom line. I mean, this is the kind of thing which is which is very difficult to kind of reconcile between the two. Which is that Clinton's corruption I can point to to show that it's helped people. It, its intention was to help people. Trump's corruption is seemingly only based to help himself. I mean. Jobs are an incidental fucking factor of his enlargement of his fucking successes. And that, I think, is the kind of core difference between the two. And at the same time, you know, people recognize and I think appreciate the kind of cynicism that Trump displays fucking openly and despise the seeming cynicism that Clinton tries to hide. And that is something that I don't that 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 is what like has like just flipped my fucking mind around you know because like i, I uh, it's just it's just really bizarre to me all right we're going to take a break for half a second here and uh i will throw my suspicion into the ring on this 
<laughs> and we're back. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, Jesus. Oh, now we're talking. So, I want to bring a variable back into this that uh, we didn't necessarily forget. You'd mentioned, but I think it is it, it it's what I assume is the key to this. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about attempting to find a false equivalency between the way that Clinton and really the Clintons are Machiavellian mm-hmm. and the way that Trump is Machiavellian, uh, mm-hmm. the the primary discriminator is that Hillary. Hillary hides her cards. Yeah, okay. And Trump does not. Yes. Trump's Trump is winning in any way he can. Hillary's winning in any way she can. But Hillary is playing from behind the wall and Trump is playing from outside the wall. Yeah. And the thing is even though there is enough transparency in our understanding of how the sausage gets made at this mm-hmm. point, um I mean the, the the mainstream news has not really done their job in making sure that we understand this, but we just sort of know this intuitively we know that backroom deals happen and we know that people are cutthroat um but the thing the the false equivalency here does come from which side of the wall these two people stand on and the only reason that becomes a moral issue is if you take what made trump appealing in the first place um ryan you had mentioned earlier that trump polled extremely well early early on he Mm -hmm. got like 30 percent just off one audacious speech practically mm-hmm. and a couple of gaffes that would have thrown any president out of the president elect out of the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were wondering whether he created that or the public already had it within them. Mm-hmm. And I think the public essentially has to have had yeah. this going in and that Trump was simply the person who rose to it, mm-hmm. um, rose to the occasion. Uh, Sam Harris comes to mind when this, uh, Sam Harris is in a lot of interesting, uh, debacles right now because, uh, Sam Harris, for those of you who don't know him, was one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse mm-hmm. over the last 10 years. He was one of the faces of new atheists. He was actually the first person of the four. He actually beat Dawkins to putting out an anti-God book. Right. Uh, Dawkins is just a much better marketer. Um, yeah. And he's British. So I know. And he's British. Which makes it sound smarter. <laughs> but it's funny because Sam Harris is having these conversations now that he didn't want to have because he is intensely frustrated with how many of his uh, listeners mm-hmm. support Trump. Yes. Um, and he doesn't, un- and it, it bothers him that there seems to be this equivalency. And a lot of that just has to do with the, syst- a lot of, it feels like it has to do with the systemic element. Right. There is, there is a general perception mm-hmm. that the system is rigged. Right. And I think if we just take that at face value, Trump's appeal is very obvious. Mm-hmm. What I don't, what I can't grant though I mean, I'm not saying anything new necessarily by suggesting that Hillary Clinton represents a horrible, corrupt politique. And that, in fact, both Bill and Hillary are sort of the modern day avatars of it. Right. I mean, it would be hard to find someone who more specifically represents what everyone thinks sucks about politics because they are – the cronies. I mean, they're about to establish. They're about to codify the dynastic regime of the executive office of the United States, mm-hmm. um, so that it's now a bipartisan thing. Yeah. Um, which I mean, that was a horrifying prospect earlier. Was that it? W- this was going to be Clinton versus Bush. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's still going to pass. It's still going to come to pass. It's just that somehow Jeb Bush. Oh my God. Jeb Bush managed to be less competent. Yes. Than his younger brother. Yes. 
And no, that shocking. Yeah. That's that's saying something. <laughs> no, I know. But it's I impressive. Don't, I, I don't I don't want to digress on that. I want to get to the end of this point. I'm not saying anything new by suggesting that Trump's appeal and the reason there's a false equivalency here is that while Trump and Hillary are both evils, one of them represents the system of evil and one of them represents the destruction of the system of evil. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not the first person to say I'm probably not the 8,000th person to say that at this point. Right. But the part that I want to bring into this conversation that for some reason it never – and maybe this goes to your not being able to get more than two points down the road before everybody's eyes glaze over. Right. Is why – one or the other of those is respectable. And we sort of hit on this already that even though Hillary does, in fact, and I do, I mean, just to be perfectly clear, I believe that being satisfied with Hillary Clinton as our next president is almost morally indefensible. There are other people that should be in her place. Mm-hmm. She she essentially stole that place. And there is... Through, I mean, and not even of her own volition. Bill wants to be back in that office too. But the, um, she's a fucking horrible person to have there. But in order for her to be worse than Trump, you have to believe that a system, even barring the fact that instability is the number one cause of um, anguish for poor people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing worse for poor people than the change of the law because as soon as no one reacts to law changes faster than people with the time and money to react to them, yeah. the poor always get fucked when the law changes because mm-hmm. they are the last people to find out about it. They're the last people who can do anything about mm-hmm. it. Um, you have to somehow believe, even granting that instability has no effect, which would it, dramatic oversimplification. That the system we have is on balance worse than other systems we might have. That somehow the one that we are currently in for literally everyone mm-hmm. in the United States, almost world that worldwide's maybe pushing it. There are some rather horrible places worldwide, but at least in the United States, you have to believe that there are actually a number of trivially easy to obtain states of being that are better than this one. Yeah. And that just doesn't seem possible. No, no, it <laughs> look the, so there's, there's kind of two, two quick points to make on this. You know, I remember back in, uh, in Occupy Wall Street, you know, I, I'm a fan of, of Slavoj Žižek um, as an entertainer, not necessarily as a philosopher, but he had some crucial points to these, <laughs> you know, to these hippie leftos that were protesting Wall Street at the time of the financial collapse. And, you know, he, they were so based in what he called, like, they just think that you just do something and then you'll get, you know, you'll reach your, your goal. And he's like, these people don't even have a clear understanding as to what their goal should be. Right. And so he, his message to these people was, you know, don't don't act. Right. Think, like, yeah. think about what you want to come after this. And what it seems like is that when I talk to people with like with Trump, you know, Trump is this massive fucking tornado that's like spiraling around the plains. And you've got your you know, you've got your village there and you think your village is horrible and corrupt and evil and that you're fucking rooting for the tornado. And then you're like, well, you know, why do you want to root for the tornado? Well, he'll tear all this shit down. And you're like, oh, great. Like, what are you going to build after that tornado tears everything down? And they're like, um, I actually haven't thought about it all that much. You know, like <laughs> they have these like really odd little, you know, oh, we got to get money. We got to get corruption out. We got to get money out. 
I mean, I understand that it's very frustrating for people who are bad at politics to hate politics. And I mean, to your point with Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's in a position that maybe other people in a kind of normative sense, you know, should have won or should be there. But she won. I mean, she won. And, again, I, and I will yeah. absolutely, I will concede that there is a there's a tremendous difference, especially when we're talking about, I mean, politics is a game where everyone has five dollars. It's it's a game where everyone's objective is to have one more dollar than they currently have. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no moral side to talking about the sovereignty of the United States. We are so much more prosperous than everyone else yeah. that this idea that we have to make, I mean, A, that we have to make America great again, B, that we need to make it better than it is, all mm -hmm. this stuff. Look, I live here. I want it all to be better. Yeah. But in in some relatively easy to demonstrate ways other than through technological, pro like technological advancement and cooperation. Mm -hmm. We are stealing the prosperity of other people yes. doing that. Well, I, that it's, yeah. don't don't just bury that like it's not the case. Also, you know, I tell my I tell my students this that you know, you guys are the top of the fucking world. Like, where the hell else would you rather be right now? Right? Like, what else would you like? The idea that we're like no, not only are we at the top, but Donald Trump will like. We will go like nine steps above where we are currently, even further. That's, right? that's like, what I'm talking about. Is like, that if you, even if you just assume that instability and and destruction doesn't actually destroy anything yeah. for some reason, <laughs> yeah. That, that once again, it's the it's your other minds, right? It's actually your other positions. Destroying something will hurt other people and benefit me, right? Like that's what they're saying. Yeah, like, the people that are benefiting are the ones I want to destroy so that I can benefit from them. I mean, this is like. It's very ironic that you get this like mob mentality with Trump of like pitchforks and sh and and you know fire torches kind of thing, but that's I think exactly what these people are thinking about, right? That's, like that's exactly yeah, what we're they storming think will the happen. fucking barricades because what's beyond it is the prosperity that belongs to us. They believe that the factories will come back online. <laughs> yes, I mean that's that is essentially what the and the problem is that that's there's there's very basic mathematical reasons to believe that that's not true, right? Because there are so many ways for our country to flourish less than it currently does. Yeah. And so few demonstrably superior ones. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of shitty things going on. Don't get me wrong. They are tangled in a rather incredible thing. Yes. Well, that it's, but it, once again, it's something that is beyond the scope of where many people kind of like, I mean, once again, the problem with Trump is that he, like to me, not only are his fucking solutions absurd, but he doesn't know how to diagnose the problem. And I feel that there is so much in the way that, I mean, I'm feeling that there's so much in the way that people are just so upset about this, about politi about how, what politics represents. I mean, so, I mean, you mentioned Machiavelli earlier. And I, I so when, when students ask me, they're like, Professor Riley, you know, are you Democrat, you're Republican? I tell them to read Machiavelli. I tell them to read Edmund Burke. And tell them to read John Stuart Mill. And I say, I'm some combination of those three people. And that almost certainly stops all of them. Yes, exactly. So, so. they never know what I, they never know about me. But when I talk about Machiavelli, um, my favorite stuff of Machiavelli is not the prince, where every, what everyone knows is the kind of cynicism of Machiavellianism. Um, Machiavelli writes, uh, he does a, um, a book where he analyzes the discourses, uh, what, what they call the discourses on Livy, where he is looking at and trying to wrestle with a an understanding of a republic, which is this this mixing of elitism and democracy, 
And the two kind of go together well, I think, very, very important, very importantly, which is that A, it allows normal people to fucking fully invest in their own lives while in a sense having politics as a hobby, right? Well, at the same time, people that want to elevate within the system of the elites that, that are running things, right, they have a distinct advantage to appeal to those people, but then also, you know, think about how to fucking prosper where they're at. And I mean, part of what I think, you know, if we look at the genius of the constitution and the genius of our political system is that it's designed to tie the political, you know, cynical ambitions of politicians to the well-being of the people that vote for them. Yeah. That is what politics is all about in this society. That, that's one of my, that's one of the one things that I will not get on board bashing on Hillary was, uh, she, uh, a lot of people talk about the way that she has flipped on certain mm -hmm. aspects of her campaign. And this is, this is something you just, you have to remind yeah. people of the definitions. They're called representatives. Yes. They're supposed to represent the opinions of the people. So when the opinions of the people change, they should change. Yes. That's what that, that's what a representative democracy means. Yes. If they don't change their stances when people's minds change, they're actually literally, by the definition of the words, not doing their job correctly. Well, and this is kind of the hypocrisy of like purity in politics anyway, right? The idea that like, you know, I believe this and I will stand up against this even if I'm proven wrong, right? Like, like that's like, that's <laughs> yeah. essentially what it is, which is that, you know, like, you know, like we think that we respect people about this, but it's it's just so odd that this gets brought up. So what we're seeing though is this this like idea that like, oh, you know, someone has a public position and a private position in politics. Uh, and I think that that's fucking stupid for several reasons, <laughs> because in the end, like a lot of politics is negotiation. And what I, I try to relay this to people, which is that in your own life, think about the, the negotiations that you get involved in, right? You are inherently duplicitous when you are in a negotiation. You are lying constantly in a negotiation. You're wanting to conce conceal from your the person you're negotiating with what your objective is or what you, what, what the minimum you will accept will be because you want more than the minimum that you will accept. You'll want one more dollar. Yes, exactly. You want that extra additional area. So we all have, I mean, if we're negotiating for a car or, or a job or a salary or anything in life, we are fully aware that this, that once again, we don't consider it cynical and hypocritical if we do this as individuals in our own private life, but somehow there is a, a completely different standard of being a human that we apply to politicians. And I don't, I don't get that. I don't think that we, we apply that to everyone. I don't think that's specific to politicians. It, it takes its most pernicious form in terms of politics. Oh, oh, definitely. But salesmen get the same rap. Anyone who's on the other side of the transaction gets the same rap. Right. Oh, okay. I got you. Yes, exactly. Right. So once again, it's the, it's the other side other sideism that we're seeing here. Yeah. I mean, Comcast does some heinous shit occasionally, but it's almost never systemic. Mm -hmm. You, there, you can look up. Type in how to lower your Comcast bill. Mm -hmm. They have a system in place for it. Nice. Okay. Like it's an actual thing. Like you have to threaten that you will cancel your service, which makes some sense because otherwise you have no leverage. But like they, Comcast does you the solid of, they're not actually even close to, and I understand that I'm defend, and uh, sort of the reason I pick Comcast is they're almost the perfect emblem of people, a system that people just hate. 
Yeah, they're 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 lower. They're actually lower in ratings than Time Warner is. I mean, they're like the, the most. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, they're yeah, like yeah. the most reviled company in America, <laughs> partially because they are one of the most popular. Yes, by the more basic definition. <laughs> yes, because people buy their shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they. There are ways around it. Mm-hmm. They they totally exist. They're just not free. They're just not convenient. And yeah, okay. That's all it takes. Yeah. But I. So in once again and. I fucking respect. I, like I said, I, I think that I respect what Hillary Clinton has accomplished within this. I mean, you've, she ran for president. Two other people ran against her on the Republican side. 17 people ran for president, <laughs> which once again, like it, it dem- I, once again, part of my argument against Bernie Sanders early on is that Bernie Sanders has spent over 20 years in Congress. He, he got one endorsement from a Democrat sitting in the House and the Senate. One. I mean, what is... It tells me that he is bad at politics. I mean, don't get me wrong. The best thing about Bernie Sanders is that he is a man of integrity, that he is a man of conviction, and that he, in a sense, seems unwilling to compromise on his political vision. And that was exactly what led him... To, led to his downfall. Yeah. I mean, it is it is exactly the kind of, you know, that that Bernie Sanders is the fucking political Alamo of this election, right? A glorious defeat. And that is something that is, while, you know, we can write songs and mythologize about it, in the end, you know, Hillary Clinton will be the one who can, uh, you know, obtain the money and political willpower to build a shrine to Bernie Sanders as a public monument. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, that, that's it's so strange that it's like, you know, we we think that politics can represent the best of our ideals about society, but it also is about the kind of necessary, hard slogging bullshit work of politics. Now, what I think is very unique is that we're losing, we're going to be seeing a president leaving leaving that was talented at cultivating both. Right? Yes. I mean, president Obama has the ability to appeal to the higher minded ideals of what politics should be. But the right wing centrist. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Which is, oh, anyway, <laughs> correct. But also he put, I mean, part of what was so brilliant about his campaign in 2008 and 12 was that he built a political campaign that just, that outraised, outmaneuvered and out organized any campaign that had come before it. I yep. mean, an unbelievable achievement in the administration of a campaign and while he absolutely has his faults in governing, right, winning election and appealing to the broader ideas in society about what politics should be, that I think we've been demonstrated someone who is uniquely gifted in those two aspects. Oh, yeah. Well, and that I think a lot of that plays into what, how, how impoverished the lineup seemed. Yeah. Was that, was that Obama was such a stand. And to be fair, Mitt Romney, as far as conservative candidates go, if he hadn't been running against Obama, he would have won no problem. No, and that that is, I mean, really, it incredibly is, bad luck on his part. Well, and and it's kind of funny because you you've kind of talked about this idea of like looking back and kind of seeing something something different and why this election kind of looks, you know, why how you look back at politics in the last 10, 15, 20 years and kind of you know, see how it's so weird about this. Now, I mean, I'm not trying to bag on this. I mean, Trump is a talented fucking guy, right? In the same ways that uh, Obama's kind of appealed to the ideas of politics as well. I mean, Trump has absolutely also appealed to the same kind of, of, of message about politics that we're describing here, right? I mean, 
Trump is a is a creature of polls as well. Trump is adaptive. Trump is Darwinian. And you know, once again, there's no fucking there's no values in in evolution. I mean, it is. I mean, survival the fittest is what fucking works just enough to fucking survive. And he has absolutely has a talent in being able to identify and cultivate and adapt to those things when he puts his mind to it and is able to do that. And that is part of what is so unique about his talent as a politician. It just turns out that the ironic thing is, is that he's actually terrible at running things. Like <laughs> this has been one of the weirdest fucking run campaigns. So I even heard this um, from one of my students. They actually don't have any of those Trump yard signs. Like the one, the one, part of the reason, I don't know, in Central Florida at least, it's very difficult to see like Trump signs like everywhere because they actually haven't like purchased and distributed enough of them to their local field offices. It's so fucking strange that like all you have to do is put an order in with a printer to get these things fucking delivered and like they aren't able to like do this. It's so, it's like, it goes no, against his core argument. Yeah, it's, oh, it's outsourcing. Yeah, exactly. He does, he lets Alex Jones do it. Oh, God. Okay, yeah. Hillary for prison. Yes, okay. So, <laughs> we had kind of talked a little bit earlier about a little bit of media there as well and about false equivalence also. Um, was there something that we could get to to kind of like just maybe talk about the issues yeah, of the media? Okay, so yeah, so the media. Yeah. Um, I tried to nut up for this in the last two weeks by listening to as many pundits as I could get my hands on. I, and uh, I, I'm sorry for you, by the way. It's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. No, I ended up stopping about a week. <laughs> a week in. You got one I got. I got my fill. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, I feel like it was enough. I don't know. I don't know who else I really needed to hear from. Um, Penn Jillette always says that the reason Fox News does well is because conservatism is losing. That it's just not interesting to hear about someone who's, when you know who's on the right side of history, it's really just not interesting to listen to them talk about things. Yes. So. Well, the, <laughs> but also there's this unique appeal about thinking you're winning while you're losing that I think they have as well. Like oh, they got I, it all, man. Yeah, I swear to God, like you know, we, Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity's appeal is their fucking absurd amount of confidence that they have. Like I think that, that is one of their core appeals. <laughs> we'll get to them. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Sorry. But um, the, the people that I so the people I mostly sought out. Pardon. Oh, Jesus. Write that down so I actually get rid of that. Um. The core people that I looked at were mostly conservative because I feel like I have a pretty strong grasp mm -hmm. on the liberal side of things, yep. mostly because my friend base, I I got a lot of people telling me they voted early in pictures on Facebook and I have a, I'm pretty confident about who they voted for. Um, so I feel like I had that covered. So I mostly delved into the conservative side with a couple of, a couple of other strays mm -hmm. um, and I went for... The basics. I went for Beck. I went for Jones. I went for O'Reilly. I went for Hannity. Right. And the thing that I'll say right off the bat, and I I apologize to Ryan because we're repeating part of a conversation we had before, but it's it is incredible just how large a continuum there is on both the liberal and conservative side in terms of ideology mm -hmm. that the other side turns in just crunches into a dot. Yeah. Um, Beck. And O'Reilly don't like Trump mm -hmm. for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Hannity and Jones both like Trump for different reasons. Okay, both of which are shitty. But yeah. the um, but yeah, it's, but like that's just, this is interesting. Yeah, like, it's, break, like it's it's very it's very bizarre. Hannity is a party man. Yeah, Hannity uh, is a Republican, and so he is voting for Trump. I also of the four, I like Hannity 
very much the least. I think he is just not. He's not a compelling. He's not even a compelling orator, and that counts for a lot with me. By yes. the way, yes, exactly. I am very much interested in an argument well said. Yes, um, and I just don't think Hannity can pull that off. O'Reilly on the same news network um, doesn't really like Trump. Doesn't I mean obviously doesn't like Hillary either? But he has a much more laid back. He is trying. O'Reilly is trying to be. The Papa Bear mm-hmm. that uh, Colbert accused him of being a yes. long, long time ago. He wants to just be the guy who sits back and it really kind of does the job that pundits would have done along many decades ago, where they don't just scream all the time. Yeah, he he essentially takes. If you ever listen to any of his talking points, they are just they are a conservatively tinged appraisal of things that are going on. Yes. And it's not like he's taking bets. It's not, it, there's no, there's no screaming until guests show on. Yeah, exactly. Which is interesting. And it actually makes him kind of in that way, an entertaining person to listen to. Then we go on to the, uh, the not Fox news because mm-hmm. everybody gives Fox news shit for being a radical, irresponsible organization. It's because they don't, they apparently don't listen outside of Fox news. Yeah. Um, Glenn Beck does not like Trump because Glenn Beck, as far as I can tell, is actually a constitutionalist Yes, to a degree that makes it impossible to like Trump because I don't know if you've ever heard him talk about anything, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't like the constitution. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He almost, with the exception of the second amendment, he essentially despises the whole thing. Yes. Um, Explicitly, yes. Uh, he's he's respond- well, he seems to be almost unaware of certain points of the Constitution. Oh, yeah, like wholly unaware. Maybe of these my favorite tweet of all time came from Trump a little while ago, mm-hmm. saying that um, was it when the uh, the Islamic woman mm-hmm. during the Islamic woman thing yeah. was going on. Read the Constitution, and Trump tweeted, "That man has no right to say, yeah. to say <laughs> that I." Oh God, that tweet was incredible. But the um, but no. So Beck actually. I mean, if Beck would drop the revisionist history bullshit, Mm -hmm. he would actually be a borderline informative human being to listen to on a regular basis. Because he does – he actually does seem fairly principled. His commercials, eh, you know, Mm -hmm. you appeal – got to sell to your audience. But it's – he actually very much seems to stand on values there. Yeah. And then there's Alex Jones. Yes. Alex Jones is where I actually listen to the most okay. of these people. Yes. Uh, partially because his voice is just so soothing to listen mm-hmm. to after a while. But also because he – I feel like he very much is the uh, – I'm not sure what. It's not necessarily leader or banner bearer. I'm not sure what the – I'm not sure what he is exactly, but he is so much what makes Trump seem like a righteous choice. Okay. Um, because you can talk about the fraud of Trump going back for the last 60, 70 years of his life, mm-hmm. of which he's had 70. I was not aware he was that old. Yeah. Um, he's pretty old. Yes. The, um, <laughs> and fat, too. I, like, I saw, like the side on – anyway, sorry. <laughs> Double-breasted suit. Let's <laughs> yeah, <no>, <laughs> But Alex Jones, Alex Jones, I will grant you, pretty terrible signal-to-noise ratio. He basically reads anything that comes across his desk. But not everything he says is complete shit-coded nonsense. Yes. And if you grant that any of it is true, the system does look pretty terrible. Right. And I can absolutely see it, it wouldn't be very hard. I would not have to be all that much more 
impoverished and undereducated to believe almost everything he says. Mm -hmm. You fall into a vortex of it. And um, in that way, he's probably a public evil. But I also just like the way that guy blusters. Mm -hmm. I can't, like, it's... No, you know what? Glenn Beck is the solution for this because Glenn Beck, in his um, in his tagline, is that he is a fusion of entertainment and education. Like right. he he lays that out. Alex Jones does not. Yes, exactly. Alex Jones attempts to be a beacon of truth, mm-hmm. and the way that he is in that platitudinous, crazy way that he is, that Beck is as well. But Beck actually steps back from it occasionally. Um, <sighs> Trump feels and this this gets into the part where I needed to see all these conservative pundits back and forth because this isn't a media thing this was a projection thing on my part mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I also know that I'm not the first person to express this specific view but I I need to say it Trump was someone I wanted to run for president mm-hmm. I wanted someone who so completely flaunted political process that it upset everything else right and that we had to do a major rethink on how everything was put together to get rid of the nonsense that didn't need to be there, the formalist ritual mm-hmm. of it that was there as a facade. And I wanted someone to blow that open. Mm-hmm. And Trump was that for about a month. Yeah. And then he kept winning. Yeah. And it's one of those things, be careful what you wish for. Yes. Because there was some, there was cynicism behind that, mm-hmm. uh, behind that belief that there should be someone there to shake things up. And I do, to some extent, still stand behind that because occasionally shaking the tree makes sure that, you know, right. the dead leaves fall off. Um, but that has to stop. And the problem is that cynicism very rapidly devolves into nihilism. Mm-hmm. And that's my stop. I can't quite follow them there, but there is something about wanting a candidate who is so brazenly opposed to the system, has such essential contempt for the system that he is attempting to wield. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's certainly a Darwinian point. Hillary, I don't think is a Darwinist. I think that almost, I think that almost pushes the false equivalency into the picture because she, that's my point. Yeah. Because she does not. She, even if she dislikes the system, she does not have contempt for it. I mean, I mean, the scariest thing about Trump is that if there was ever a situation where Trump's success was balanced with the country, with, with other people's failure, right? I think he would make that decision. You know, like, I don't think he has a kind of higher minded ideal that what he's doing is for other people, right? And the scariest, you know, the scariest decision that someone would face in, in office would be, I need to do what is best for everyone, even if it looks, even if in the long run, I think that this will wound me politically, right? My ability to hold power, right? And I think that that's that's one of the most, that's one of the terrifying things about dictatorships and the incentives of leaders, which is that it's, it is that it is because of, because of the incentives, dictatorships are bad systems because, you know, if there's a decision between holding or maintaining or gaining power at the expense of others, you always make the other, you know, you make the former decision. And you change the rules to allow that. Yes, exactly. That's, and that's the one, the most content, I mean, there's, there have been so many Rubicon moments for Trump, mm-hmm. but the one, the one that makes Godwin's law right. come into effect is the way that he's talking about how the election might be rigged. Yes. He has a contempt for 
That's that is essentially, and even if it's true, right. the way that he is approaching it mm -hmm. is a contempt for democracy. Yes, and so you've the nihilism you've kind of spoken to is so. What I talked about, you know, so we're kind of going through my trifecta here, right? We <laughs> talked about Burke. Um, part of Burke's argument is that you know the same way that history are the lies we you know we tell ourselves about about what happened, right? Or you know, history is what we choose to remember. Um, our political system and the kind of the, the formalistic conventions that have kind of developed around our politics, it turns out that those things are actually fucking important. <laughs> that like the the standard ways that we go through things, the idea that yes, if if every time a, a presidential candidate has lost in the modern media, uh, in the modern media landscape of the last 40 years, right, they give a concession speech, right? When Al Gore loses his decision in 2000 to the Supreme Court, the very next day he goes on and he gives a national speech that says, this is the decision, I accept it, we need to support our new president, even though there were fucking really valid political reasons that Gore could have said, fuck you, I'll see you in four years, let's do this. You know, like, he could have done that. Yep. But he chose not to do that, right? He he chose to fucking respect the system, even if he disagreed with its outcome, and maybe felt poorly done by the very system that led to that decision. But right? at least waited. Yes. If he had done that, I could almost, I could forgive him for after it. I mean, as they did, there was some degree of contention about it. Oh, there absolutely. Was, oh, no. Still to this day, I can tell you can find people that are pissed off about 2000. But they waited until it happened. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They waited until there was some evidence of it. Mm-hmm. And that that difference that difference matters yes. tremendously. Yeah. Because it essentially it's Trump is essentially saying, and I know we backpedaled on this. I'm hearing about this as snippets oh, from off. the fuck no, off. no 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 no. I'm I'm saying I'm saying even if we grant his backpedal on it, the need to address it in the way that he did, which suggest which again was fully cynical because even it's. I think it's perfectly fine for him to say that if something goes wrong, we'll investigate it. We should do that. Mm -hmm. It's that he believes that something will go wrong and that he is not doing anything to attempt to remedy it in advance. Yeah, exactly. He is showing that he does not – he is essentially saying that he won. Yes. He he can't technically concede at this point. No. And he and – he, I, I don't know if he will. I mean, that's, I mean, that, that is what is odd is that, I mean, look, there have been worse people that have won for president that have fucking handled this situation better than he's handling it. <laughs> and I don't fucking get that this, I mean, once again, it's, it's part of the difficulty of understanding why someone, why someone hates where this, where this country is right now so, so much. And the fact is, is that I know that a lot of people, when they when they look at, at politics, what they view as politics, and they don't see themselves or their values reflected in that, right? I get, I get that that is hurtful. I mean, once again, I was an atheist during the Bush years, you know, like <laughs> I get that, you know, when you look at society and you don't feel that the majority stands or reflects the values that you hold, you know, like welcome, you know, like, yes, like I, I can, I can, I can connect with that feeling. But at the same time, like I, it's just so strange that the nihilism that he's representing is that this, because look, on election day, what's going to happen is that maybe a hundred million Americans are going to vote. 
right? Tens of millions of people are going to vote for Donald Trump. Tens of millions of people are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And all that's going to happen is that a few more million people are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. That's all that's going to happen. This isn't some fucking huge conspiracy. This isn't some earth-shattering event that's happened. I mean, that's all that's going to happen, right? In a, in a few key states, a couple million more people are going to vote for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. And that's all, I mean, that's what's going to happen. And the idea that this is somehow just an endemic of all that is fucked up about our society is just the wrong, once again, the wrong diagnosis of the problem. Like it is just, it is just really fucking shocking to me that so many people are just like, well, this venerable institution that seemed to do well, you know, even 10, 15, 20 years ago is somehow completely corrupt and, un and unworthy of our reverence or support. Like it is just so fucking strange that this, that things have kind of flipped on a dime with people and that there is the kind of viciousness that is presented in the system. And I, once again, I know that like there is the kind of characterization that you know, liberals hold a lot of contempt for people that they don't feel view their, that don't take their views on society as well. But, you know, there hasn't been that kind of outward contempt displayed by that, that is just, just streaming out of these fucking people in, in the support of this, of this, uh, of this view of the election. And that, I mean, there is there are some really real ways that this cannot that this may not end well or may go bad in a very very serious way. I'm increasingly concerned about that. Um, I think Trump winning would be worse, but enough people I think enough people do in fact believe him. Yeah, when he says that that something something off is going to occur, mm -hmm. and there are enough of them. Enough of them are semi competent with the. Uh, Computers and uh, firearms uh, and yeah, you know, and like, other forms of disruption that I think that may be a very real problem. But we will have to wait and see on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ryan, why are we voting for Hillary or Trump instead of one of <laughs> the at least two perfectly – like I know, I know John Oliver – I, we got this podcast in just a little too late. John Oliver stole some of the thunder, but yeah. I still, I want to talk for a minute about two other people mm -hmm. who should be here in our time of need. Yes. And for some reason, they just don't have their act together. Nope. Ryan, I know you, at the top of this hour, you did, uh, you mentioned that I'm the more libertarian of the two of us, and that is fair. Yeah. I think I think there's a bit of a misconstrual there in that it's mostly a goalpost thing. I think the government's role in a lot of things is essentially critical to the functioning of society. It's just how much. Yes, exactly. And to it's what a, degree. Yeah, a matter of degrees. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's not a stance so much as a position. It's, I agree. Yes. But Gary Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> Gary. <laughs> Gary, baby. Gary. Yeah. G. Libertarianism sells itself. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do anything to make libertarianism sound appealing. Let me give you an example. Don't you wish the government mm -hmm. would just fuck off <laughs> with its foreign wars mm -hmm. and its taxing my income mm -hmm. and its bureaucracy and it's systemic racism, mm -hmm. and it's political jockeying, and all the bull... Don't you wish they would just do less of that? Mm -hmm. 
You're done. Yeah. You walk off stage. Yeah. Drop the mic. And 70% of America will just intuitively agree with you. Mm -hmm. So just shut up right there. <laughs> and it's not a pro the It's so frustrating because I it feels like he was almost a better candidate before and because he ran in 2012. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, he was actually there. It's it, like I, I said a long time ago uh, that he would be he would be a terrible president. He's probably a perfectly good governor. I can believe that because the way that he talks is the kind of talk that you have in, you know, in a room when you're just trying to settle something, mm -hmm. when you're trying to just calm things down, which is most of what governorship is. Governorship yeah. is putting out fires. Yeah. And I can totally see him being good at that. The president's job is so much more than that. Mm -hmm. And the arrogance with which he flaunts that responsibility yeah, okay. is insane. Yeah. Like that I'm I actually would almost almost give him a pass for not knowing what Aleppo is. I'll admit I didn't know, but I'm also not fucking running for president. <laughs> but the fact that he didn't know how to dodge a question like that yes. is ridiculous. Like how how can there not be if the business world is full of people who have been to the Dale Carnegie Institute that yeah. know how to talk, yeah. there are a lot of successful businessmen that have climbed Mount Everest. Why is he the one running for president? <laughs> like, have are there not enough other businessmen that donate enough to charity mm -hmm. that are okay with how much they've contributed to society and hence taken away from society to be, you know, they already built their house. Mm -hmm. They have their family. Right. Like Gary Johnson on paper is a model citizen. I will grant yeah, him that. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it's just, it's incredible how little that background means at the end of the day yeah. when he talks like that and behaves like that. Mm -hmm. And all, all it would have taken was more homework. No. And well, it's, it's also very shocking because like, um, the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party is a guy named Bill Weld. Yeah. And poor Bill Amazing Weld. Amazing name, by the yes, way. Yes, Bill Weld, who actually, it, yes, appears to be, when you hear him talk, and more importantly, when you see him in contrast uh, to Gary Johnson, appears to be the better politician of the two. Yes. And it is very, very funny to me that, like, he, like, watching him having to like sit next to and digest what is going on next to him in the spokesperson of the libertarian party and Gary Johnson is very, very funny and humorous to watch. Um, my contempt for libertarianism as an ideology and as a, as a political party is um, well established among my base of friends, but it's, I mean, look, once, look, and again, all you have to do to fight libertarianism is ask another question. Yes, exactly. Yeah, That's yeah. all it takes. Yeah, never go to a hippie with a second to a second location. And <laughs> Gary Johnson, unfortunately, is that hippie. But he is he is so wrapped up in 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 his own funkiness. You know, like like the idea that like I mean, you have to trust if you trust in the market, you have to have this sense of like, look, it's no big deal. We can handle this. You know, it it has a mechanism that will, in a sense, be self regulating. Yeah. But it's kind of like you said, like. The problem is, is that if you want to be a, if you want to become a libertarian for president, you will have to steer this machine and mechanism towards that end. Yeah. Like you need to take that task with a little more gravity than what you think it will just be like, well, just get rid of some shit. Department of education. Yeah, man, fucking chips will fall where they may. Just get rid of it and we're good to go. And yeah. you're like, you know, like, is that, that's your plan?
Like, <laughs> like that's the plan is just like, we'll just like wake up one day and that will be the case. Like, it's very shocking to kind of like, to see that, like, it's almost blase, like, you know, like, you know, come see, come saw, whatever happens, you know, yeah. like, and you're like, holy shit, man. Like, and to see Bill Weld, who kind of like is just a, a classic politician, like having to like see him work through these things with Gary Johnson is just very, very humorous overall. And to the certain extent that he almost like semi endorsed Clinton, like as well, <laughs> he's like, well, if we're not going to lose, I'd rather see her in place, you know, like, if, I mean, excuse me, if we're not going to win, and I'd rather see her there. Um, yeah, he's really sane. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. We're it, so I am I mean, once again, I just to kind of bring this up to you also, um I've also been seeing a lot of articles this election about the you know, the Silicon Valley. I hate I hate that blanket phrase, but I'll just use it because it's sim, you know, signifies what it signifies. And they're worthy of the contempt yes. it brings. But that Silicon Valley not only tended to give and donate more towards Obama, but now has like fucking really spent a lot of money and donated a lot of money to Hillary Clinton's cause. And I was, I'm trying to like see some speeches that are kind of like going on through this. And um, I know he's not the best representative of this, but like um, Mark Cuban, uh, you know, uh, successful businessman, at least less successful uh, Dallas Mavericks basketball team (laughs) owner. Uh, Like he, you know, he's been going on the stump a lot for Clinton and I've been like hearing and listening to his approach. And I think now correct me if I'm wrong here. This is like my, like, you know, pre theory about this, but that a lot of what is interesting, which is that you tend to see uh, like a strong libertarian wing in, especially early Silicon Valley, you know, like, like eighties and nineties Silicon Valley. Yeah. Now, you know, Zuckerberg and the Facebook crew are, you know, liberals, right? Like a lot of other, um, you know, Google executives have also ha- liberals and donating to democratic causes. There's a geopolitical element to that. Absolutely. But then also, but okay. So the other side of the coin is that they tend to think that, I, I tend to think that they see an opportunity in not so much what the purpose of government is, but that it needs help in achieving its ends. And the way like Mark Cuban talks about like the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare in particular, is that he says it's, you know, it's it's like a fucking startup and we have to kind of approach it and manage it as if it were a startup. And this is what I think is interesting about the libertarian ideology and kind of applying more market-based solutions towards governing anyway, which is that there is a kind of difference in the way that these things conceptually need to be managed. And I think that part of what is attracting, you know, this kind of element to that is this, is the challenge of being able to meet governing. Because in the end, I mean, let's talk about this, self-governing cars, excuse me, self-driving cars are like apparently a thing that like people want to happen very soon. That by necessity will have to be a public sphere function. By necessity, I would argue, would have to be that. A lot of things Google does. Yes. A lot of Elon, things Google Elon does Musk require, as well. Like, well, Elon Musk is the poster child for this. I mean, Elon Musk, his primary his primary claim to fame as an innovator doesn't really have to do with technical prowess. He doesn't have any of that. He has the best government connections of anyone anywhere. But what it seems is that li- like old school libertarianism has been this, you know, we need to get rid of government and let the market function as it's meant to be functioned. And what I'm just trying to see here is that there's the strand has always been alive, but it seems that what the tech community has kind of decided is that you you can't you won't be able to get rid of government, 
but can you have it function in the kind of style or, or, or incentives that markets tend to operate towards? And this is why I think they're tending to support Democrats, which is that they know they need the kind of the public administrative side of, of governing the world to, be, to back them to accomplish these wider, more really fucking ambitious goals that they're going after. There is... There is a lot of history to unpack there okay. as to yeah, why it as to why it yeah, runs know, in like one direction or the other. Here, but well, like, and, I, like, and I don't have enough detail to fully edify anyone on it. But there are a couple of things that are very important here. Uh, right. One of them, one of them is uh, standardization. Okay, which in in the world of software and har- and uh, communications technology is possibly better regulated than anywhere else. Ever. There are organizations that know what the next Wi-Fi standard is going to be. Mm-hmm. They know what the next chip process is going to be. I forget what the name, it's It's like the International Semiconductor Partnership. It is a constitution of the five big player, I don't even think it's five anymore. It's like Intel, uh, TSMC, Global Foundry. The, All companies I've never heard of the, before. Oh, that's I, fine. I know, I know. The head engineers of these companies got together and they, I think they've, I think this convention has finally ended, but they got together 20 years ago and they just, they, they figured out mm-hmm. what all this shit was going to be. They formed the IEEE, which is the standard that determines um, communications uh, mm-hmm. on wave, the wavelengths everybody's going to use, what the speeds are, what, mm-hmm. because if you don't do all of this massive amount of what everyone else would see as tremendously bureaucratic standardization, None of our shit talks to anything Yes, else. exactly, yeah. Everybody needed to agree on this stuff. Okay. And that form of collaboration, you know, it was a pseudo-government. And to some degree, it was the allure of that was very libertarian in some yeah, ways. Yeah, absolutely. No, but but the ahead. problem is that at some point, even though we're not calling it a state, that is governance. Yes, exactly. And at that point, once you already understand how to deal with bureaucracy that way, Google is such a massive company, Intel such a massive company um, very few companies of scale like that mm-hmm. can't have standardization that looks a lot like a government and governments already exist. Yes, exactly. And they already have a lot of funding. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's, and then you can, I, and again, this could, this could branch in a million directions, but basically the, the thrust of it is that I, the NSA is all built on contract. Mm-hmm. Um, but those Dell and Google and all those companies their behavior, their understanding of government contracts is just as well tuned as Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, yeah, absolutely, and Boeing. So I, I just maybe because there's like two two different things there, right? There's like this the cynicism of that. Well, Democrats are about regulations, and if regulations affect their business, they're fucking going to like lobby and back people to that. So government will favor the playing field towards their <laughs> ends and their their goals. Um, which I mean, once again, that's just politics. So don't get me wrong. I'm not, I mean, I'm not like praising that side of it, but you know, like it's also fucking freedom, you know, that like you would identify your interest and seek to focus on and, you know, move, use your resources to better serve your interests. I mean, you know, like that's why I don't tend to have a problem with lobbying because like, that's what fucking freedom is, you know? So, um, but the other side of that coin is that the idea of through their own experience without government having to establish a system of governance over a shared and common area, right? So they, in a sense, I think, learned the lessons of this kind of interaction and have, I think, a very interesting perspective when they can 
you know, reflect on and look at what governing wants, what they want to happen with their large scale goals and recognize that, you know, an improvement in, in the mechanism of government, which is governance, right? Being effective in the way that you manage the tasks you've been assigned. I think that that is something that they are trying to also influence in as well, because, you know, to a certain, I mean, the the rollout of the affordable, of the healthcare.gov website was famously bungled. And yet it has worked relatively flawlessly ever since then because they brought in people from Google and from other websites that could fucking establish a working system that could handle millions of people, you know, uh, uh, millions amount of hits and traffic per day to, to handle this thing in an effective way. And I am just fascinated that this has kind of come from something that you would have, you know, that like 20 years ago, people were naming their kids like Rand and, you know, Ayn and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. these people were just you know, so seemingly in love with the kind of virtue of selfishness, selfishness mindset. And yet 20 years later, we get like Elon Musk and, you know, Facebook and Google executives who are kind of seeing that, like, you know, the role of of the collective good that we play in, in providing effective governance of not only our own te- technological systems, but how those necessarily interact and almost lay on top of the, the collective pr- goods provided by government is something that we share symbiosis with and something that because we share symbiosis with need to affect and improve because helping that also helps our companies and helps us deliver better goods and products to our customers as yeah, well. Yeah, and that's the thing to absolutely not lose in the uh, in the wash there is that this is entirely self-serving. Oh, I, I, the government I told you the brilliance of America, man. <laughs> like there's something there. It's, it's tremendously self-serving. But that's that's always people people talk about Exxon manipulating governments. Exxon doesn't manipulate governments. Exxon works with governments. Yes. When your company brings in four hundred billion dollars a year mm-hmm. across every country in the world, you can't just flip the middle finger at people. Yeah. No. If anything, they make a lot of deals. Yes. Now, if anything, governments are, governments are, are corrupting Exxon to a certain extent. Yeah, you know? like, no, it's that works both ways. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big ship. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the end, I'm not voting for third parties. Uh, I've never voted for third party. Actually, I don't. I don't. I, I've never. I don't. I don't protest vote. If I could just re- really raise a hair too. This is the first time I've ever voted. Oh, and awesome. I did it quite begrudgingly. Yes, excellent. It's the reason we're having this podcast. Excellent. That's very good to hear. Um, and the, but also too, David, I mean, why, why, oh, why, oh, why is this only something about third parties that we talk about for president? I mean, like why there needs, why are there no libertarian or green candidates running for mayor anywhere? Like it seemed that if you were going to establish any sort of fucking credibility, you would need to do so by being able to point to a success you've actually attained in governing rather than saying, you know, hey, we've, um, you know. Like, just give me the highest responsibility in the land with this unproven fucking ideology that I'm presenting to you. Yeah. Like, why don't, like, is there... Because you because everybody plays the game at the state level, so everybody plays the game at the federal level. Yeah, they always they always bullshit around this idea that, like, well, if we get an, if you get a certain percent of the vote in a year, you get public you get some public finance through the campaign system set up by the federal government, which is, of course, fucking hilarious that you know, the Libertarian Party, in a sense, is relying on the kind of campaign welfare that the federal government provides uh, to po- political parties that gain the amount of vote share needed, um, which, you know, is hilarious. But also, they, 
I mean, the biggest knock against third parties is that they don't seem to have a coherent strategy to making themselves relevant other than every four years as popping up as something that says, hey, don't you hate these fuckers over here? You, why don't you give me a shot? You got nothing to fucking lose. And I mean, the ironic thing is that in this election, I think that there clearly is something to lose, <laughs> like the valued institutions of our history and our and our politics in one candidate. So yeah, like, but by that standard, there are three third party yeah, candidates. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. We'll get back to that. I want to just say one word on Jill Stein. Mm-hmm. Um, fuck you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So environmentalism. Yes. I am all for it. In theory. As long yeah. as none of the people who are environmentalists are on my side, apparently. Yes. Um, what is, oh, what's his name? Uh, Stuart Brand. Mm-hmm. It's the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog, which was basically the predecessor to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. He is a pioneer of biology and environmentalism. He was at the forefront of everything for the last 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. Amazing human being. Wrote a book like a decade ago right. in favor of nuclear power, cities, uh, and genetically modified crops. In, in terms of being good for their ecological benefits? In terms of we need to be doing all of these things as rapidly as possible. Yes. These are all positions that environmentalists have opposed for 50 years. Yes. Uh, Some of them still do. Mm -hmm. In fact, most of them still do. Mm -hmm. Jill Stein is a doctor and she is now the second doctor Mm -hmm. in this, I think this election cycle who has demonstrated that that does not qualify you for anything (laughs) besides being a doctor. And I'm not, and I'm amazed that John Oliver does bang up work most of the time. Right. He didn't pull, he didn't pull a line on Jill Stein that I'm floored. He didn't. Jill Stein believes that Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. is more likely to start world war three than Donald Trump. Yeah. And by that logic would rather see Donald Trump in office. Yes. What the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) No, you cannot, that, that is an incoherent yes. conclusion. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't, there is historical evidence that if she is more of the same, mm-hmm. we will not have world war three. Yes, exactly. We haven't had it yet. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> it's so, it's so infuriating because environmentalism, what the green party stands for again, almost like libertarianism, but you can actually go down a step and go, but no, we should actually do this. Yes. But then you go down one more step and the people in favor of it mm-hmm. are all lunatics. Yes. And they are fanat- they're fanatics in the way that they blame everyone else of being fanatics. Yes. Like there is, technology has been so good for the environment mm-hmm. in so many ways. Yes. And they just throw all of that away. Yeah. I it, it is unconscionable. Mm-hmm. And it makes, it, it, it honestly makes fighting for the environment harder yes. when people like that are on your side. I mean, it's like, it's like trying to be a conservative right now. Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, my mom is running into this all the time because my mom is, my mom's basically a disillusioned conservative. She's always been part of the cynical conservatives who are voting, who believe they're voting for the lesser of two evils because the Democrats say one thing and do another. And at least, you know, the conservatives are, say they hate government. Yeah. They, actually, they, they yeah. hate, they despise the system, but they at least play within the system. Mm-hmm. She's now at this point where she can't like the, the people that hurt are on her side mm-hmm. bother her so much that she's afraid of the association. Yeah, absolutely. And that I that's fucking toxic. Yes. Um and it's worse now than it's ever been for most everybody except for the 
everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one, no one has this anymore. Like this is, it, it, there's no, there's no way, there's no face saving party to be part of anymore. No, it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really kind of creepy. I mean, I've never had this problem because I just don't, I don't vote. But yeah. <laughs> the, well, that, but like, there's a problem in the kind of like association of people in an, in an organization when, you know, if you, if there are kind of two ways that this, that your company or that your, that this group is proposed to go and you don't like either one of them, right? That's a difficult decision to have to make, which is that I can either propose and lead my own third way, which is very, you know, like usually by the time you've recognized the need that there's a need for a third way, it's usually already too late. Yeah. You know, like the momentum towards the other two has kind of already progressed to a certain point. It turns out it's really hard to do stuff. Yes. It's, especially with other people. Yeah. Cause like other people are the worst. Yeah. Okay. Kind yeah. of. Yeah. So, um, but, but one, okay. One, one funny thing about world war three is that it is ironic that, the very thing that has prevented World War III from breaking out are the very inst- global institutions that Donald Trump says he wants to destroy. So I do think that's kind of funny. Which, is- which Jill Stein is willing to completely yeah, exactly. ignore for yes. the purpose, f- just because the, the, for some reason our relationship with Russia is apparently so terrible right mm-hmm. now that it's going to result in. Well, and she is also a noted RT contributor. Now, dear readers, if you ever have posted an article from the little, like, uh, the green cu- the green square with RT in the middle of it, I want you to look up what that RT means. It means Russia Today. And then I want you to find who runs Russia Today. It turns out that it is actually owned by the Russian government. <laughs> so, for the love of fucking God, the next person, from a, next American citizen that posts a goddamn article on their, on their page promoting that fucking propagandistic bullshit web uh, news organization. I'm going to flip my goddamn lid because <laughs> like I get this shit from my students. They're like, can we use this in our essays? And I'm like, Wikipedia that motherfucker and tell me whether or not you think that's a viable news source. And it's always this like, oh, I had no idea, you know? And oh, so noted RT contributor, Jill Stein. <laughs> it turns out that environmentalists have usually been marginalized in our society. And I think it's only recently that we're kind of discovering that that was actually a good thing, like in a very, (laughs) very real sense, because they don't have gen four nuclear reactors Mm -hmm. as a direct result of environmentalist movements. No. And I mean, the one, the the bad, the worst thing about it is that they tend to be relatively incompetent in like running large scale organizations in general, which is also kind of the blessing, which is that they'll never really attain the political power to actually fuck shit up and like wanting us to return to like Walden Pond, you know, like type existence. The problem is the part that they're really good at is slowing things down. And that's more than enough. Gotcha. Okay. Because the solution to almost every environmental problem is action. Yeah. Um, which they, they are not good at. Well, that's, yeah, because like like we've talked, I think several, at least I remember mentioning myself about the kind of like momentum of the mechanism that's happening here in our society and the idea that this can somehow be halted, right? Like it's, if it's, if, if it's moving with momentum, you need to just like, you know, once again, if you don't think that the fucking brick wall is like directly in front of us, right? That if we've got some time before we hit this brick wall, especially in an ecological sense, right? The, you know, minor corrections over time will, will, will allow us to avoid a lot of the problems that we know are kind of, are kind of, are potentially and have a very good chance of happening here. But the problem is, is that they've, because they seem to only exist on the kind of like emotional, like, 
cataclysmic view of the world that they have about these issues that like it makes their solutions untenable and 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 borderline irresponsible. Yeah. And it is something that I mean once again it's just very difficult because nobody fucking wants to live in a toxic shithole. Like nobody wants to end up there. And yet they almost do a disservice by having these just really I mean, they're just quacks. Like they're kooks and quacks. Like it's very difficult to to an absolute to a baffling degree. Yes. I mean, and I'm not trying to denigrate the idea that like, you know, these are people that put crystals on their body to think that they're healing and such like that. I mean, I mean, there is like you know, I'm not trying to besmirch the kind of origin of beliefs that kind of are associated with these things. I have to only critique the public pre presentation of the ideas and the fact that I don't think they're doing themselves any fucking favor by doing that. No. Right? That's my main problem with them. Because in the end, I am sympathetic to the ideas and, and, and want there to be more of an effort in our society and a desire for people to make better ecological choices when they either are either consumers or when government consumes itself. And they are only hurting their own case in the manner in which they've been conducting themselves, for my view at least, for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. Oh, it's longer than that. Oh, I mean, like I said, this is what I've had the most experience with as it's, well. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely reprehensible. It's And and to have to say that, to have to say that the, the pro-environment movement is reprehensible, mm -hmm. with or without the context, is just, that sucks so bad. No, it That's shouldn't be that so way. frustrating. Well, but that it's, I mean, it's also difficult too, because there's a fucking viable political movement of green ideology in Europe that actually has like fucking responsible, effective people like operating within it. And like, they have their own problems though. Oh, I know. Oh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> like, like they have their own problems, but that at least they're actually the reason we don't have, G they are the reason anti-GM popped up in the first place. In Europe, that you mean? Yeah, no, 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 period. Oh, period. The reason why organic is where it is today is because of a political manipulation on Europe's part mm -hmm. to make, and I understand that this sounds like a conspiracy. Feel free to fact check this as much as you want. This just appears to kind of be the way it is. Europe lost the genetics game mm -hmm. to America, American farmers between our subsidies and just our general tech race over the last 50 years. And badassness. Yeah, essentially yeah. the American way. <laughs> American exceptionalism proved out yeah. in the form of some really impressive crop yields. Right. Europe's method for curtailing this was a form of import tariff yeah. disguised in the common agricultural policy, which if anybody knows anything yep. about the EU... That's just a fun document from top to bottom. Yes, that's... Yeah. Um, if, you, if you want to understand what real political corruption looks like, mm -hmm. read the Common Agricultural Policy. Because yeah. holy shit, that document is bizarre. But anyway, within that, Europe has a massive amount of discrimination against genetically modified food. Yes. I don't actually know what the threshold is at this point. Mm -hmm. I believe for the most part... Everything there is organic except for stuff that they put as ingredients into more processed foods and right. stuff like that. But as a result, um, the environmentalist movement, which na latches onto anything yeah. that can be considered more natural than <laughs> anything that is less natural, yes, uh. latched onto this and the fucking pseudoscience fire hose turned mm -hmm. on. And genetically modified crops have been stunted in their design ever since. Mm -hmm. As a I, I'm not saying that Monsanto has never done an evil thing. 
they have done so few yeah. compared to the number of things they've been blamed for. Right, absolutely. I mean, th- how many organizations are under more constant unfair scrutiny than a company like Monsanto? Everyone eats food. Yeah, exactly. If anyone ever gets sick from food, mm-hmm. like that's that's all it takes for them to get blamed for something. Yeah. And as a general rule, if you know anything about small business – the reason that nine out of ten small businesses fail is because nine out of ten small business owners are wildly incompetent people. Yeah, who are willing to lie about why they're not good at their jobs. Yeah, exactly. Like this is, and this just all rolls together. And that's again, you're fighting against the man. Mm-hmm. You're fighting against synthetic food. Mm-hmm. You're fighting. <laughs> we could make genetically modified food that tastes better than organic food. It's a non-starter because rich people only buy organic food. Right, okay. That's literally that one, two, ju- that is why, that, that's why organic food tastes better. Mm-hmm. Because it is sold to people who have more money and those people who have more money believe almost axiomatically now that organic food is better. Yes. Well, that's, and that's what's so strange is that it's not necessarily in the pleasure of eating, but the belief that it is actually doing you be- benefits that aren't actually proven. It's, like, ju- it's societal at yeah, this point. Yeah, no. I, but I do have to say that, though, that one of the cool things that has kind of come from this is that, like, we ha- like apples are amazing now. Like, I mean, so I don't, I mean, maybe if I can defend this just a little bit, oh, but like, but also so much of that comes from a lot of the basis on GMO, like, because one of the weird things is that, a lot of what has kind of provided the ability to kind of, you know, hydroponic, you know, insecticide, pesticide, uh, yeah, whatever, pesticide-free, yeah. you know, more, uh, less, to- uh, less to- uh, seemingly toxic fertilizers as well. So much of that had kind of come from the light laboratory environment of GMO food, of the food-making process. Like, like that it is, what is strange is that they are so based in the kind of organic mindset that they can't see exactly how the GMO movement and the kind of like Monsanto scientification of food process has actually benefited them. Like, Tremendously. Yeah, no. And that's what's so irritating also is that there's just no kind of like recognition at all in the benefits that Monsanto provides. Like, cause I always tell people that if you hate Barack Obama or if you hate George W. Bush, if you can't name two things that they have done well, like you need to reevaluate how you look at the world to a certain extent. <laughs> like there's some, there's something really fundamental about the problems that you that uh, your diagnosis and view of the world. If you can't find some sort of benefits that have come from something that you view as like problematic in the world, right? Yeah. Because nothing is that nothing nothing is that black and white. And like you're saying, like I'm not saying Monsanto is a saintly organization that deserves our reverence, but at the same time, don't be fucking blind to the kind of reason that they are in the position they're at like, yeah. once again like people tend to view the success of others as being something wholly unavailable to them right corruption luck, luck yeah. or malignance yeah, luck malignance corruption whatever you have it and really no they were actually doing something right and well and, yeah. and effective and that's why they're in the position that they're at and yeah. it's just yeah I, I don't want to harp on that point because that goes off into the weeds a bit but if you want to know anything about genetically engineered crops yes as they ought to be called since there are no not genetically modified crops anymore. Yes. yes. Stuart Brand explains all of this in succinct detail mm-hmm. in Whole Earth Discipline. Yes. Uh, it's a great book. Um, but enough about Jill Stein. I don't ever want to talk about her again. Yep. She will be done after this year, hopefully. I, I doubt it. Two, she's uh, has, she's running at least two other campaigns. Oh, God. And she's got like a... Like a and she's never going to die. <laughs> it's all that fucking organic genetically engineered food. Do I have any points on here I didn't touch? No, we just about covered everything. Politics, man. Voting. 
voting. I voted already, by the way. Yep. Got yeah, it so did I. Good. Huh. Send in my absentee. Woo! Mercy. I called. Good. I called Patrick uh, Bobek uh-huh. to ask if any of our uh, if our any of our judges needed to be ousted. He said uh, no. Yep. No, so. I I tend to. Like, if you've never heard them before, odds are they're doing their job. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's, like, generally, the, yeah. that's generally the scope. Yeah, like, you know, like, uh, an, anonymity in our judges is actually probably a good thing. <laughs> One would hope so. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> no, that's, I think John Oliver has a thing on that, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, that show, I'm so glad that show's still doing good. He's still kicking, man. I gotta yeah. tell you, it's impressive. And there's always more to cover. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and by the way, vote no on any constitutional amendment ever. Like, just, like, no. Yeah. Like, why have it there? Like we fucking elect people for a reason to like pass laws. Yeah. And in the end, I was kind of, I was kind of like mocking a little bit because on, on our, on our Florida ballot, every fucking election, there's like some new exemption for people from property tax. Yes. And like, fuck that. Like, <laughs> no, pray your goddamn, like, oh, was it first responders? It's, it's wounded veterans. It's, you know, elderly p- terminal people. Like, no, like everybody needs to pay tax. Eventually there'll, there'll just be no property tax because we'll just like name a group enough of people that will get exempted. And then eventually we'll all fall into one of them. And we'll yeah. like, there'll be no property tax in the end. Fuck that. Well, pay your property tax. I mean, isn't that basically how the homestead exemption works? Oh God damn it's it. It's just everybody files the yes. homestead exemption. Well, but once again, it's all to benefit rich people. Like it is like so fucking strange to me that these yeah, you things have to get own popping. a house already. Well, and but like land, like not. I mean, a house, yes, but then land, like oh god. <laughs> it's okay. I'm all right. Vote no on one through uh, one I have through, everything. One through everything. Yeah, okay. Fuck that. Especially if it has to do with solar power. Oh, solar power will like look. For all my friends, like I understand greasing the wheels a little bit. Subsidies, sometimes they help. Yeah. When solar power is ready to be everywhere, solar companies will fucking let you know about it. Yes, exactly. When solar power is actually economically viable, it will suddenly be all over the fucking place. Yes. At the moment, solar power, how long? I mean, I I haven't been alive for long enough to know, Ryan, have you been alive long enough? To know how long the solar push has been going on. So when I was back in elementary school in the early nineties, uh, before the um, like the late eighties, early nineties, there was a big to do that they put in two solar panels at our school. That by the time this was like first second grade, by the time I was in fifth grade, had like mold growing on them because they were not maintained well enough because they were fucking pointless. <laughs> and I mean, once again, like I am. Um, I, I recognize that this is important, but the idea that we would have to like exploit other natural resources in, in order to make it even seem viable just seems to go against the very goddamn purpose. And to a certain extent, I think is delaying the very mechanism that would drive it to be fucking e- economically viable and relevant in our lives anyway. And I am very frustrated about that. Okay, so uh, U.S. per capita consumption by fuel source, according to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. 2014 is the most recent thing they have. Uh, we consume, uh, based on this, what is it? Um, it looks like the stat here is in kilowatt hours, so 13 megawatt hours. That doesn't sound right. Oh, per capita. Okay. Yeah. Uh, per capita consumption, 13 megawatt hours per year. Ryan, do you want to take a guess how many? Those 13 megawatt hours come from solar? Come from solar. I will I'll go I will lowball this. I will go two megawatt hours. Fifty-five kilowatt hours. 
So point point five five or point five five point five of one kilo of one megawatt hour. Let me do the uh, let the machine do the math here. That is yeah, that's four tenths of a percent. Four tenths of a percent. Excellent. All right, good. <laughs> that's a doozy. Uh, you know how much still comes from nuclear, no matter how much we shit on it. How much? Uh, twenty five hundred kilowatts. Oh, very good. Okay. Come on. Like a fraction. Harness the sun, man. I'm telling you, we can do I mean, this. Like I, I, mean, under, I mean, like fusion. fusion. Like I, I, under, I understand it's a bumper sticker and I understand that Japan <laughs> ruined this forever, but a uh, Gen 4 <laughs> nuclear, a Gen 4 nuclear reactor is more safe during a meltdown than a coal power plant when it's operating correctly. <laughs> um, oh, God. Just so you know. Okay. So. Also, uranium's like the eighth most populous mineral. It can be done. Yeah, it can, we, it, it actually it fucking it, eventually we, it will be done, right? Like, we ha, we'll see. Yeah, like we we, we had. I'm done. This is why I don't okay. talk about okay, politics. Okay, yeah, no, we're done. Yeah, this right. is this is this is literally this was the point of this podcast was to be mad about things, and I feel like it worked. I know. I feel good. I know. I feel I feel like I got my Lewis Black out of my system. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> All right, good. Oh man. <laughs> No, we can't do it. All right, so we're getting out of here, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, good. I'm, I can't stand it. No, I don't have any, if my final if it gave me a final thought, it'd take twenty minutes to get it out. <sighs> Been fun, David. Indeed. All right, <laughs> Ryan. Thanks for being part of the machination log. Good morning, everyone. <laughs>